If you enjoy the channel and our video content and would like to support us, you can do this in a couple of ways. You can sign up to our Patreon site which is a monthly subscription to one of our four tiers, each giving you something different from early access interviews up to exclusive unseen footage. There's also the option of a one-off donation via PayPal which allows you the option to donate an amount of your choice. Both options really help to keep this channel going and to continue putting out regular content for you good folk. So please take a look at aircrewinterview.tv forward slash donate and I thank you in advance. Thank you and enjoy. So Chris, when did you first become interested in aviation? Yeah, it happened early in my life. Um, I was inspired by my dad. My dad flew RF4s in the Air Force for the first uh, probably eight to ten years of his life, or his uh, officer life. Uh, we were stationed in Germany. My dad was at Zweibrücken Air Base, one of the many great uh, bases in Western Europe that have now since shut down. But um, I was about five or six years old. My brother and I were escorted by one of his uh, squadron pilots. You know, we got to drive around the uh, flight line. And uh, we went up to the control tower. My dad was flying that day. He mm -hmm. was doing a functional check flight, which is when you take the airplane uh, out for a, for a flight. Uh, it's normally been down for maintenance for a couple weeks, a couple months, getting some sort of major modification or some work done. Uh, and so they take it out and they uh, work the airplane to the full aircraft limits uh, with primary modes, alternate modes. So we got up to the tower. They took to the runway and then uh, they light up the afterburner, the reheat, and uh, roll down the runway snatched up the gear and flaps and then uh, the overcast uh, that day was about 800 feet to a thousand feet so a low overcast uh, over Germany uh, and I remember they pulled full vertical we saw the afterburn plumes and they disappeared into the clouds and I went oh I think that's what I want to do for my life so it was that was kind of the catch of the hook that uh, uh, gave me some uh, something I always want to do was fly was seeing my dad and also my grandfather he was a Spent 26 years in the Air Force. Uh, he was a B-17 pilot uh, in World War II. He was he took off from a, a base in England. Uh, on a second mission, he was shot down over Holland. So he uh, bailed out all of his crew and himself uh, and got out just before the airplane crashed and uh, crashed into a farm in Holland. So he spent two years as a POW. Um, and then afterwards, after the war was over, he, he came back to the States and was a test pilot out of Edwards Air Force Base and uh, had a long, um, distinguishable career in the Air Force and uh, he got the chance to fly with Chuck Yeager out in the out in the deserts of uh, Southern California and, and dropped him from B-29 when he went Mach 2.2 and he was a test program manager for the X-15 program out at Edwards and so growing up as a kid sitting around the dinner table hearing those stories of his life in the Air Force that plus seeing my dad fly around in F-4 uh, was a pretty easy decision. One, I for started my love for aviation and also a desire to join the Air Force. Sounds like almost you didn't have a choice, really. Yeah, that's right. That's what I thought when I went into the Air Force, or went into college. I was like, I think this is what I'm going to do. I think this is what we do in the Russell family. So, mm -hmm. so what year did you actually join the U.S. Air Force? So I joined uh, the Air Force in 1995. I went to a university in Colorado, uh, up just north of Denver, Colorado State. Graduated in 95. I went through the Air Force ROTC program there, so um, that gets you ready to be an officer in the Air Force. Um, entered in 1995. At the time, um, I did not have the eyesight to be a pilot, so I only was a navigator qualified, and at the time they had shut down the Air Force Navigator Training School for about two years after Desert Storm. They, they got rid of F-4s, F-111s, a lot of the airplanes uh, went away, and so they shut down the nav school for two years in the early to mid-90s, and so there was no, uh, not many navigator slots uh, as I came out of college, so it wasn't until about 1997 that I got picked up to go to flight school. 
And did you always call them navigators? Because I, I thought Americans always referred to them as whizzles. Uh, no, they're, uh, it depends on what kind of planes you fly. So traditionally, um, whizzles were folks that flew fighters and bombers, and then navigators were folks that flew you know, C-130s, RC-135s, KC-135s at the time, back when they had navigators. So the whizzles were really mostly F-15E, B-52, B-1 kind of platforms. Mm -hmm. So can you talk us through some of your initial training as a whizzle? Um, yeah, we, I went to a, called the Joint Undergraduate Navigator Training. So this was a program that was run by the Navy, but we had all the different services that had na navigators in their platform. So the Marines were down there, folks that were going to fly the uh, F-18 and the EA-6 Prowler. Uh, we had Navy uh, officers down there, then Air Force officers, and then we also had an international footprint down there. So the Germans were there, folks were going to fly the F-4 and the Tornado mm -hmm. for the German Air Force. Uh, we had Royal Saudi Air Force. Uh, students there, so it was kind of a mixed bag of not only joint forces on the U.S. side, but also international flavor. So, and did uh, whistles go through a separate course and pilots? So after navigator train, yeah. So the pilot training and navigator training is separate until we meet, we met up at. Uh, we all got selected. You know, however, what aircraft you selected, we ended up at Seymour Johnson Air Force Base in North Carolina. Once you get to Seymour Johnson Air Force Base, all the pilots and whistles you're crewed with a student pilot and a student whistle are crewed together. And so we go through the same course together. We fly the same uh, missions together. There's a few additional uh, flights that the pilots fly with an instructor pilot in the back seat before they put a WIZO in. Those are typically the very first couple flights in the training. Hey, learn how to take off and land, learn how to do emergency procedures, learn how to do uh, um, approaches in the visual circuit and the instrument circuit. Uh, and then they'll put us together and we'll fly together as a two ship. We're going to talk about um, being a whistle and then bit, but uh, did you always want to go on to the Strike Eagle? Yes. Yeah, I think uh, when it debuted in Desert Storm, I was on my last year of high school, but watching the F-15Es and all, all the work that uh, they did along with the other uh, platforms in Desert Storm, I think that's where I first noticed the F-15E uh, and how incredible it looked and uh, what a war horse it was uh, during Desert Storm and then uh, through the 90s, um, just what an impressive airplane it was. And there was an F-15E book that was published a couple years after Desert Storm that I recall reading uh, F-15E in the Gulf and uh, just be mesmerized by the stories that the guys told and then later on in my career getting to fly with some of the same folks that were in Desert Storm. So yeah, yeah I always wanted to fly the F-15 from the day I went to flight school. Once I saw it debut in Desert Storm and then also going through flight school. Yeah. Uh, she was always the one I wanted to fly. So. Brilliant. So what was the, what's the actual role of a weasel on their Strike Eagle? Yeah, it's, um, you know, your integrated uh, two-person uh, air crew. Uh, I mean, in the simplest terms, it's to employ that weapon system to kill and survive. I mean, it's, it's a war fighting death dealer, you know, as they, they might say. Um, but the job is to work as an integrator crew to one, find the target, uh, destroy it, um, and also, you know, be there for safety of flight, be there to enhance uh, situation awareness between the two, not only in, in the aircraft, but also in the formation in your flight. So uh, we're, we're typically looking for targets on the ground to uh, destroy or drop bombs on. Uh, we're typically communicating with the folks on the ground uh, at our part of the ground unit. And so it's a, a, a nice mix of uh, duties between the pilot uh, and the whizzo in the backseat. Can you talk us through some of your ground training on the Strike Eagle? Yeah, uh, a typical, uh, when you first get to a um, Seymour Johnson to the formal training unit, it's about a six month checkout in the F-15 to get basically qualified in the F-15. Uh, initially, it's about a month of academics, a lot of cockpit trainers and simulators to get you ready to, one, just be familiar with the cockpit, familiar with the layout, get uh, the emergency procedures, get comfortable with emergency procedures, how all the uh, avionics work. 
uh, and then it's about a month, month and a half after you start the ground training that you start flying. And so you'll, you'll go through about the next four or five months of flight training, but in between the flying, you're still in doing um, ground academics simulators as you increase the missions from air to air to air to ground, learn about weapons. Uh, the academics continues throughout the, uh, the six month, six months, and there's about five months of flying. Oh. And can you talk us through your first flight in the Eagle and getting in the burners? <laughs> oh, I tell you what, I still remember to this day, uh, one, just walking out to the F-15, just, just what she looks like. Um, it's a menacing airplane. It's a slick-looking airplane. It's just a, always a joy to walk out to the airplane. But I remember climbing up the ladder. Um, it's high off the ground, you know, uh, compared to other uh, older fighters. Uh, but sitting in the cockpit, um, and just one, just where it's a bubble canopy. It's a beautiful view, even from the back seats. You know, you get a great view. Uh, and uh, we taxied out. It was thankfully on the very first flight uh, in the F-15E. You get to do a vertical takeoff. It's kind of a welcome to the Strike Eagle community. And so, is that Seymour Johnson? And uh, we, we went down the runway, uh, took off, put the gear and flaps up, and accelerated about 400 miles an hour. And then the pilot pulled up uh, straight as a beautiful blue sky. And I remember uh, going up, and uh, he said, "Look over your shoulder." And, and uh, looked over and see the, the runway just, you know, getting quickly smaller as we ascended into, uh, into the blue sky. So it was incredible uh, power going down the runway and then just uh, this, the acceleration and the ability to vertically climb that quickly was uh, impressive. And can you talk us through some of your flying training? Yeah, so um, typical training in a squadron, are there six month training cycles? So you start off with uh, basic uh, air-to-air fundamentals, you know, so we'll take off the external fuel tanks uh, to make the aircraft a little bit lighter and simulate what it would be like if we had to merge with another uh, enemy aircraft. And so we'll do some basic fighter maneuvers. That's 1v1, dogfighting, you know, offensive, defensive, and then high aspect missions where you, you, the fight is on right when you uh, pass uh, canopy to canopy and then, you know, you fight from there. Then we move on to 2v1, so two blue air, two formation versus a one uh, enemy aircraft. It could be on the front, they could be on the side, they could be behind you, different altitudes. So we'll get comfortable flying that for about a week or two. And then we'll move into 2vx, so two uh, blue air or blue friendly uh, forces against any number of uh, enemy aircraft. And so we get good at those kind of tactics in the air to air. Once we get comfortable with that, then we'll move into uh, air to ground basics. So air to ground bombing, strafing with the, uh, the gun. Uh, we'll do some, used to do terrain following during the day, get comfortable with that, then transition to nights and do basic surface attack at night, terrain following at night, and then uh, we'll put all those together after about four or five months. We'll do air to air, we'll be opposed, so we'll, have, we'll take off, we'll fight our way in, kill anybody who's in our way, go drop bombs on the target and fight our way back out. So that's kind of the bread and butter of the F-15E is to put all that stuff together. Self-escort was what the airplane was made to do in case nobody else can uh, provide that. And so we got the ability to shoot air-to-air -air missiles, we got the ability to shoot bombs, and so we put all together. And that kind of wraps up a six-month training cycle. Mm -hmm. Then you typically deploy, and if you don't deploy, then you kind of go back out, go uh, start over from square one. Let's get back to the air-to-air -air fundamentals. You know, it's been a couple months that we've done that, uh, and you kind of start start that process again. So how did the E fare in DSET? Favorite subject in the <laughs> Yeah, it, yeah, there's, uh, it, it all depends on the, the experience of the pilot and also the airplane you're flying uh, against, what your weight is, you know, how much fuel you have on board. Um, you know, beyond visual reins, you know, the airplane is, is, is tough to beat. Certainly when I started flying, it was you know, the premier fighter, obviously with stealth and some of the other capabilities that are out there. You know, it, there's, some, there's some good capabilities on, on both, both stealth and uh, uh, fourth generation fighters. Uh, within visual range, I uh, had some successes against a, a Mirage F1s down in Greece, you know, we're fighting those guys. Um, I tell you what, uh, fighting, 
Dogfighting close in with an F-16, a Eurofighter, a Marine F-18 is a humbling experience because <laughs> the F-15E um, differs from the F-15C. It's got some external, well it's got external tanks, but um, even without those we have conformal fuel tanks. And so those create, that's an extra, almost 10,000 pounds of extra gas. Uh, we've got a lot of parasite drag where we hang our bombs on our airplane. Even if the bombs are not on there, there's little uh, bomb racks that create drag and each, each one of those uh, adds up to uh, more drag. So you can deplete your energy pretty quickly um, uh, in the close-in fight if you're trying to go in for a kill. So some of those aircraft that were better within visual uh, um, maneuvering uh, stitches up pretty good. But it also depends on if you've got a young pilot and the other, you know, an F-16 or a Eurofighter and you've got a very experienced F-15 pilot, um, you know, you can certainly surprise them with some of the maneuverability of the F-15. Did you ever go up against an F-14? Uh, no, I did not. I would love to, because that would have been a, been a good fight. Yeah, that's right, yeah. <laughs> so what was your first squadron, and where were you based? So my first squadron was the 335th Fighter Squadron. It was based in Seymour Johnson Air Force Base in North Carolina. Uh, I got into that squadron about um, February of 2000, and uh, spent about three years in that squadron. Can you talk us through a day in the life of a Wizzo on the frontline squadron? Sure. The uh, day in the life of a Wizzo when you first get to a squadron is to, to master that weapon system. And it's to get as smart as, as many things as you can as quickly as you can. So you try to fly them as much as you can. And when they're not flying, they should be studying uh, in, our, in our vault. We call it the vault. But uh, it, weapons and tactics shop lives back there. That's where our tactics manuals are. Uh, that's where our academics are. And that's where you know a young wizard should be uh, spending the majority of the time. But the day in the life on a, on a typical sortie, uh, you're an integral crew of the uh, integral part of the uh, the formation and the airplane. So you're involved in mission planning the sortie. You're coming up with an air-to-air -air game plan, how we're going to defeat the air uh, um, enemy out there. Air-to-ground game plan, how we're going to put the bombs on the target at this particular time at this particular altitude. Uh, you're involved in the briefing, so you're briefing all aspects of the uh, the flights. And then you go out and execute, and you come back and debrief uh, what you learned. You watch the tapes uh, during the flight, and then you rinse, slather, repeat the next day, and and uh, until the weekend. So it's not always like Top Gun. No, 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 it's, it's not always like Top Gun. <laughs> but did you find it scary coming into a frontline squadron? I mean, you took us around today, and just going in there, you, I'd be so nervous if it was my first time on a frontline squadron. Like yeah, you're, you're definitely anxious, because these guys, I mean, these squadrons have so much combat experience, and here you are, you've never been to combat, you've never really, it, it, it takes a couple years. For me, it took me a couple years to kind of master the airplane. You know, it, it doesn't just happen. As soon as you're done with Seymour Johnson, you get your ops squadron. You still have to go through about a three or four month mission qual checkout. Wow. So in order, before those, those folks can go to war, you still gotta, you learn how to fly the basic, you've learned how to fly the F-15 basically, but you, now you need to employ this thing in combat and, and really understand the tactics. And so, yeah, there's a little bit of, um, I guess, anxiety. You're excited to be in the squadron, you're full of, you know, you just spent the last two or three years of your life training to get here. And so it's easy to stay motivated, but yeah, it's a lot of work for the guys when they first get to squadron because there's just so many um, missions in the F-15E. There's a lot of different weapons it drops, and so you got to master those in, in order to do that. you got to fly a lot, and you got to study a lot. Yeah, so let's talk about some of the wary, uh, weapons that could carry in your time, if you could just explain that for the viewers. Yeah, so uh, when I entered the F-15E, it was uh, before JDAM, before GPS-guided mm -hmm. weapons. So we had uh, dumb bombs, so general-purpose bombs, so Mark 82s, Mark 84s, and the young guys would probably laugh uh, <laughs> the day if they heard that. But uh, 
so that was kind of the bread and butter, and then uh, laser guided weapons, you know, around for a long time. So that was also the bread and butter. Uh, laser guided weapons, 500 pounds and uh, 2,000 pound weapons, the GB12 and the GB10. Um, and then we had GB24, which is still around. That's a 2,000 pound um, laser guided weapon, big wings, very accurate, and uh, a good standoff as well for that for that laser guided bomb. Also, back in the day, AGM 130s, which are no longer in use, and GB 15s. These are uh, long, the G AGM 130 has a, a rocket on it, so you drop it, and then at a certain altitude, the rocket fires nice. and fires for about a minute. So it adds an extra, you know, 10, 15 miles of standoff for the AGM 130. Uh, and if you ever saw any videos of Operation Allied Force, you know, in Kosovo, a lot of the videos that you see of the, the bomb going right through the window. Those are AG-130s and GB-15s, and those were still out uh, when, I, when I first entered the aircraft. And then about 2004 is when we got JDMs, uh, and I was stationed at RAF Lake Neath at the time, and so we got GPS munitions and took all, out, took all the fun out of, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I'd recommend you put in coordinates and uh, it goes where you want it to, as mm -hmm. long as the coordinates are uh, accurate. So let's talk about some of the strengths and weaknesses of the Strike Eagle. Sure, the strengths, um, you know, twin engine, twin seat, uh, it's got a lot of power, carries a lot of gas, and carries a lot of munitions. And so it's certainly, when you're downrange, uh, the Combined Forces Air Component Commander, the three-star general, typically wants to know where the F-15Es are because we got a lot of gas and a lot of, a lot of weapons. Uh, so it brings a tremendous capability. And, and the two-seat air, uh, airplane brings a lot, as long as uh, you got two good guys in the, in the, in the <laughs> cockpit, right? So yeah, you know, you'd hate to have somebody who's draining somebody's uh, situational awareness. But if you put two good, two good crew in the same jet, that multiplies the capability of that aircraft uh, just because all the capabilities that you can do. You, you can have the pilot worried about the air-to-air -air threat, meanwhile the, the whizzos in the back seat um, finding the air-to-ground target. In, ter in terms of weaknesses, I'd say there's not many, you know, mm -hmm. other than she's not stealthy. Uh, in that close-in fight, um, she does uh, deplete energy pretty quickly because of the drag. Uh, so there's ways to manage that with the airspeed and kind of our nose, r nose rate, but um, uh, you know, th that's probably the biggest weakness there. It's just she's, she's heavy and has a lot of drag. Do you think there's still a need for a two-seat aircraft these days? Yeah, I do. Um, certainly just as the missions grow, the avionics grow, the capabilities grow, it's sure nice to have two people managing all the systems and information. I know the F-15EX, you know, there's a lot of conversations right now in our Air Force to talk about what to do with the, you know, is it single-seat fighter primarily uh, and they have an empty back seat for most of the time or do we put a, mm -hmm. a, a crewed pilot and a crewed WISO together to expand the capabilities in that. Certainly I'd like to see the latter of th those two. Uh, just given that I grew up flying a two-seat fighter, and, and hopefully our Air Force does, but um, I, I certainly see the value if you got two good crew members, just the lethality that that airplane can do, and how quickly and efficient it can do uh, be uh, in combat. Uh, there, there's, I think it's very worthy to have two people. So, what's your thoughts on that? Yeah, is it the EX? Um, yep, EX. Yeah, is that basically just an upgraded Strike Eagle? Or? Yeah, it's got a lot of capabilities, and half of them I don't. I'm not, unfortunately not able to uh, get access to. But yeah, it, it's got more hard points on the airplane, so it can carry more external uh, ordnance. Uh, it's got a lot more um, interoperability with some of our fifth-gen aircraft and uh, other fourth-gen aircraft. Uh, a lot more encrypted. It's got a lot better self-protection capability with it. So in newer engines, um, so it's got a lot more capability than our current ones that are out on the line. Mm -hmm. And do you think Lake Neath will see them into service? I sure hope so. We'll see. The generals in the Air Force are trying to determine the future of where these EXs are going to go. Mm -hmm. I know they've reduced the scope in terms of how many the Air Force is going to buy, um, but uh, it, it's certainly not out of the question uh, because this Lake Neath is one of the premier uh, fighter wings in our Air Force. It's a premier location and premier AOR, an important AOR. So 
certainly would not be out of the conversation that EXs uh, potentially could show up here someday, but I, I really don't know. Mm -hmm. There'll be a lot more spotters, I think. Sure, that's <laughs> when, right. Once yep. the yep. come in. But uh, let's talk about your cockpit. Was it all uh, colored displays or was it still black and green? Uh, so the color displays, uh, there's four total displays. The two outside ones are color. The two inside are monochrome or just two colors. It's just green, basically. So. Yeah, but uh, it's four displays up there. They're controlled by two hand controls, one on the left and one on the right-hand side. So the right-hand controller controls the two right screens. The left-hand controller controls the uh, two left screens. There's about 20 push buttons around each screen. So you can either push, push, your, push your way through the different menus or you can, uh, some of it you can hotas, uh, hands-on throttle and stick. You can kind of, uh, almost like a mouse in your computer, you can do right, you know buttons on there to uh, navigate your way through the screens. Um, in terms of cockpit instrumentation, very minimal in the back seat. There's not a lot of round dials, a couple of backup standby, uh, you know, airspeed, altitude, altimeters, but uh, mostly, and they're soon gonna, you know, the new EX that's coming out is gonna have a couple of major big displays, you know, take all that information and- Like put iPads on almost. That's right, yeah, exactly. So, and it's, it's all gonna be color, so it's gonna mm -hmm. be pretty slick. And how did you get used to? Because I always think, um, especially in the backseat, like Tornado F15, pulling G, how do you focus on these screens? Is it, does it take um, a lot Yeah, of yeah, you get a lot of neck strain uh, for sure. It, it does take some getting used to, um, uh, but you get used to it. And, and nothing, when we're heads down, it's probably no more than four to five Gs. It certainly, that's a lot of strain on your neck. Mm -hmm. But typically, if we're doing close air support or dropping bombs, we're not doing any more than about four or five Gs on the, on the final phases. So, but yeah, your head can get stuck. When you want to look outside, you might be stuck in four to five Gs, and you're just gonna have to wait until the pilot releases back stick, <laughs> and then you can pop up. But uh, I've only gotten stuck just a few times, because I typically know you can anticipate what the pilot's gonna do based on the situation that we're in. Well, hey, somebody's locking us up on the ground. You know, we need to defend against that one. So I know what maneuvers are gonna come, come up uh, in the future. There's only been a few times where I've been looking left, the pilot goes you're right <laughs> in my, my helmet knocks the side of the canopy, like, oh, woke me up. Um, but uh, no, it's, uh, it, it, for the most part, you, you can anticipate what's, what's, the next, what's gonna happen in the next phase of flight and so you can be ready for it. Mm -hmm. And have you ever flown on any large exercises like red flag or maple flag? Yeah, like I did a lot of red flags, probably uh, probably four or five uh, red flags, um, which are outstanding. They used to be two-week exercises. Now they've gone into three-week three week exercises because there's just so many more missions. And they're bringing in a lot more than just fighter aircraft. They've got fighter, bomber, all the C2 aircraft. That, I guess they've always been a part of the red flag, but they're bringing in space capabilities, cyber oh, capabilities. Wow. Okay. How do we integrate all that into a total defeat of whatever target we're going after or threat that we're going after and so they've really become incredible training uh, out there so but yeah I've, i had a chance to fly with multiple different countries multiple different services uh, and you can't beat two or three weeks hair on fire flying in the southern nevada ranges this great training and uh, thankfully they're, they're continuing to do it today have you seen that um i think it's a film called red flag I think. Yeah. yeah what did you think of that well i, I it was a great uh it, it was a good video. It was great to see on IMAX. A lot of good footage. I knew the the main character in there was a former squadron commander at uh, RAF Lake and Heath. But uh, no, it it was it was good footage. You know, some cheesy in, in parts. <laughs> Sorry for the production of that. Uh, but it it, uh, it was It was good to watch. Mm -hmm. So you obviously flew um, RAF Lake and Heath. Did you ever work with the RAF much? 
Yeah, on a, on a number of occasions. Uh, I got a chance to fly with the uh, Eurofighter here a couple of times, mostly in the dogfighting arena, you know, coordinate before we went on the ground in the phone call, hey, let's meet up in the airspace over the North Sea. And, uh, let's, as you do. Let, yeah, as you do uh, with multi-million dollar airplanes um, and let's dogfight. And so I uh, had a great opportunity to train with them as well. And then also the big DACT, so the big dissimilar fights, we've also had a chance to fly with them as either they're a four ship out in front and more strikers in the back. So I had a chance to integrate with the RAF. Uh, and also when I was a squadron commander, I worked a lot with the airspace folks to coordinate scheduling and how to best utilize the airspace between the RAF and the US Air Force. So a little bit of air training and also a lot of ground training and just how do we uh, sort out the airspace uh, in, in the UK. Is there a lot of differences between the RAF and the US Air Force when you train and fight? Uh, I mean, overall, the tactics are fairly similar. You know, a lot of our missiles are about the same, you know, shot ranges. Uh, there's only so many ways to defeat the enemy. And so, and that's why we have red flags together with the UK partners. You know, we get out there and train together. We share uh, what our tactics are, they share with us, and then we debrief and we talk about them after we're done flying. So there's a lot of similarities. And, and we have exchanges too. We have the RAF that exchange and fly F-15Es, oh, okay. uh, both here and back in Seymour Johnson. I've had my friends fly tornadoes and, and, uh, and Eurofighters. So, so there's a lot of exchange and opportunity to exchange various, through those various exercises or actual flying the squadron for a couple of years. And do you think Lake and Heath is an important base for Europe? Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, you've got uh, now three fighter squadrons here, two F-15E squadrons in the, in the F-35, and just across the street, uh, you've got RAF Mildenhall providing KC-135, so the folks that helps give us gas. You've got RC-135s over there that help uh, gather intel in the AOR. So, uh, crucial base, and uh, you know, certainly one that. Uh, I wouldn't think be going away anytime soon. <laughs> yeah. It's too big anyway. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> so how often would you fly at Lake and Heath? Um, when you're a young crew, you're probably flying on average three to four times a week. Some days you fly, some, some weeks you fly five. Uh, the older you get, the less stories you need to stay proficient because normally you've got bigger responsibilities yeah. in the wing, whether you're in a leadership position or an important job in the wing, you're typically flying one to two times a week. But the minimum required sorties for a young guy is nine flights a month. Uh, experienced is uh, eight. And then if you're an attached squadron, it's five. They don't fly the attached guys as much, much as because they've got other responsibilities. But typically, guys are flying eight to nine times a month to stay current. Is that the same today as um, in your day? Yeah, should be. Yep. Oh, okay, yeah. right. Because yep. mm -hmm. it seems like the RAF, they're getting less and less hours these days. I don't know if it's the same for the US Air Force. Yeah, I, it, I've, I haven't flown in six years, so my, my information might be dated, but uh, um, I, I don't know how many flying hours uh, they're getting per year, but uh, I suspect uh, they're flying uh, just as much as they were probably when I left. Yeah. I'm going to ask a really nerdy question. Here. Yeah, go ahead. Um, hopefully I'm, I'm not a nerd, so hopefully I can <laughs> answer it. Well, um, I've always been fascinated with the nozzles on the E because yep. they don't have the petals on, as you call it, uh, or the turkey feathers. Why mm -hmm. is that? Uh, these do have turkey feathers on Oh, did they really? Yeah, okay. I, um, if I understand what you're talking about. But yeah, the, the nozzles, um, it depends. So the Pratt & Whitney engines don't have the, the covering of the, of the, of the feathers. Um, the, the, uh, General Electric engines do. But the, yeah, they move a lot, right? So when they're in idle power, they're wide open. When you go to mill power, they close. And when you select reheat, they'll open back open. There's a lot of stuff happening inside the engines to, to, to make all that start work, make that uh, more powerful. But uh, they'll, they'll open back up once they go to afterburner 
and uh, the jets at Lake and Heath, uh, the 229 engines, have 11 stages of afterburner. So they've got a really long plume. It's a little bit bluish uh, compared to the 220, 220 engines at mm -hmm. Seymour Johnson and one squadron mountain home. That's a five stage, but it's more orange uh, mm -hmm. pumping out the back of that one. But yeah, it's uh, yeah they do flex a lot and they make a lot of noises. Uh, I was going to say the actuator. Yeah, yeah, there's a digital computer in those engines that control the nozzles. And so oh, the, cool. the whining, you hear the folks go from, you know, Moving the throttles, you'll hear that's the computer moving the uh, the nozzles. Mm -hmm. And before we move on to, you had a very interesting event, didn't you? Yeah. <laughs> but can you tell us in front of us? We got this F-15 on a stick. Can you tell us what this is used for? Well, the stick is uh, an airplane on a stick is normally used for um, briefing and debriefing to visually show references. Whether if it's a close-in fight, hey, if you're offensive, I, I would put the stick here, and uh, hey, this is where you're trying to shoot the shoot the enemy aircraft. If you're defensive, you try to show them pictures of, hey, this is when you need to jink, this is when you need to defend against a missile shot. Um, but I was going to show this for the strafing discussion we're going to talk about uh, in just a minute. So. Yeah.